On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have a very special guest. He went on to start the, really the first or the only publicly traded sports betting, I guess the first, right? Because then later there began Mm -hmm. one. And uh, he was nice enough to join us in our hotel room tonight, and we're going to go drink old fashions after we're done. So listen to this podcast. It's right in front of you, and we'll talk to you soon. Let's start the process. Bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. So welcome to a very special edition of the Bet the Process podcast, where we have the OG, the original gangster, the original bookmaker, Roxy Roxborough, who started it all, started this whole thing. So my first question to you is, what do you make of everything that's happened in the U.S. right now? Do you think it's just like much ado about nothing, like this was long time coming and blah, 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 and yawn? Or do you think this is like crazy? I guess sort of a yawn because... If I had waited for this to happen, and I was always hoping that it would, I would have had to wait another 20 years. Another 22 years, I would have had to wait. From when you retired. Yeah. When he sold LVSC. Right. Yeah. So in other words, I, uh, if I had hung on that long, I wouldn't have been able to enjoy it when it came around anyway. But I think it shows how when you leave things up to individual states, how dysfunctional things get. So we have a, a diverse special interest with lotteries and casinos and private businesses trying to carve out a niche in this business and the state regulations are all discombobulated. So I'm a little disappointed in that. I think the rollout's been pretty slow. So what do you think about, like, it's been a year right now. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the states are moving in the right direction or do you think like it's just a mess? Because I was like, if you think about the ideal structure, do you think that Nevada has the ideal structure or do you think there's even a better structure than that? Well, for the better, the ideal structure is the sports betting is run by casinos. Um, because and the state receives nothing. Oh, well, in, in an ideal situ- situation, you'd have, you'd have uh, every game would be even money and there wouldn't be tax. So you have to work from there. And probably the, the worst of the scenarios is the lottery-based games. So what fits in where the state gets some tax the betters get a fair shake. And that's usually the way New Jersey's done it, driven by um, casinos and private competition. That may be an anomaly, though. The reason casinos uh, help this business from a player standpoint and competition standpoint is they really aren't under the gun to show money for this uh, sports betting venture. And I always think that works to the player's uh, favor. Eventually, companies like... like, like, (laughs) Be a lost leader, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, sort of. Because if these places had to stand on their own, they, they wouldn't Do you think that's it. how Nevada looked at it? I think that's how it turned into the business in Nevada. Because there's only one, well, there's two private places left, Canner, and, uh, which is, you know, loses money in William Hill. So I think that's how it evolved. And that makes a competitive landscape because casinos are always competing against each other. And when you have the private uh, companies competing against the casinos, that's pretty good. If you go to states that don't have a casino business... Or you go to D.C., for example. Oh, God, um, D.C. Where you don't have a casino business. It's ripe for a monopoly stage. And apparently the 
current legislation will be a monopoly for for lottery betting. So wait, let's well, go back. Let's take a step back, mm-hmm. which is something you said that was very interesting, which was there's two people right now in Nevada. It's essentially Canner and William Hill. Mm-hmm. You say Canner loses money. Mm-hmm. And William Hill, we think, makes money, I right. assume, and mm-hmm. it's because they do slightly different methodology than Canner does. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's possible for someone to be a successful book and make money? Well, <clears throat> it's difficult because look what happened in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania put up what people thought were massive barriers to, to entry with a $10 million fee to get a license and a very high tax rate turned out that they're growing and growing and they're going to end up with mobile apps. They're going to be a major player. That couldn't happen if only private businesses could start. There wouldn't be any money in, in, in a forum. The big question is, when are DraftKings and FanDuel going to have to show profits? How long can they go down this uh, road, like same as Uber or Lyft? Or, you know, eventually there has to be some profit somewhere at some time. And how long it takes them to go down that road I think it's probably, to me, uh, financially going forward, the number one issue. So if you were a FanDuel or DraftKings, mm-hmm. would you be pouring all this money into marketing that, that they're doing? What well, do you think the right strategy is for them? Well, that's their model, you know, is, is to the um, cost of acquisition of, of, of players. Eventually, you just can't pay unlimited amounts to players. But I, I think that the way that some of the English bookmakers do it in FanDuel and DraftKings will end up being the future of sports betting, much to the detriment of people that like to make a living on it or people that are listening to us. I think it's going to be very high volume, very low transactions. I, I believe that the average bet will be a dollar or less uh, five to 10 years from now. And they'll just, it's sort of like penny slots. People will be just betting on everything and the churn, and the churn will be very fast. The, the biggest thing in sports betting from a profit uh, standpoint is the churn is so slow. I mean, the events are far apart. There aren't that many of them. The in-game betting is, is going to be the new driver of, of how much you can extract out of the game. And as, as we see, the profit margins are pretty big in the in-game betting. So what you're saying is like in those in-game bets, there's almost like these micro bets that are happening mm-hmm. all the time in-game. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the, 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 the direction you think that it will go in. Mm-hmm. So why, why do those have to be micro bets? I understand like that those can be you know, that they can re- increase the turnover, mm-hmm. but why do they have to be small? Couldn't they be big bets that are micro? Well, I think what will happen is that there's much less risk, obviously, for the bookmakers to use these wide spreads at, um, um, at small limits. And the cost of transaction now is, is infinitesimal. So I think that's going to drive the, the, the betting. And I, you're already seeing it now on, on some of the big uh, uh, offshore bookmakers that are basically throwing up semi-preposterous lines for $250 and letting people, letting the market, it's, it's a combination of an algorithm on betters and also a, um, uh, the wisdom of crowds. So they, I'll give you a good example. So Pinnacle puts up the over and under, this is an esoteric bet, puts up the over and under for the number of points in the uh, English Premier League season for each team. They just put up some numbers that are basically a shade off last year's and they put it up for $250. Well, I would sort of, I like to make serious bets into that, but it, now you have to look at it. What do you want to do? Do you want to bet, bet a bad number at $250 limit? And then they will move it past the max. They'll actually move it. If it's a 20 cent line, they'll move it 23 cents because they have a card on who I am. So eventually you won't need any bookmakers. Everything will be algorithmic driven. An algo will put the line out 
They'll use small limits. The wisdom of crowds will get to the marketplace they want to be. The so line, like have a market-making algorithm. Exactly. Also. And what happens is um, the closer to the post time, the larger the bets of limits will be. Of course, the market will be much more efficient too. So do you think, I mean, with that being said, do you think the future is an exchange? Because right now, I mean, we don't have, there isn't an exchange in the United mm -hmm. States, of course, and, and Betfair is big for mm -hmm. like soccer and cricket mm -hmm. and sports like that. But it, I mean, it, it does seem to me like it's the most direct, it's the most efficient solution. But, you know, obviously you have to have the tax rate, the, the taxation. And the commission. And, and the commission has to be, you know. So but, right, right now it doesn't lend itself towards sports betting, uh, Betfair. It was uh, originally a horse racing uh, product, right? And the commission rates in some parts of the world are pretty high. So if they're giving you a 6% commission on net, if you're betting, and you put, it means you get effect, an effective rate of about 3%. Uh, you know, if you're betting like a football game. Because it's 6% on the winning bets, right? Right, on the, right. On the net. Uh, it's actually better for futures, but because you can um, take a lot of positions, right? But so one game versus another game, and that for a lot of, with a volume discount, you can probably get down to 2%. But you can do better than um, shopping sports bet prices right now. Right, but I mean, is that sort of the whole commission structure endemic to exchanges? Or is there a way, I mean, do you see in the future exchanges being the cheapest option for a sports better? And like why? Well, they would be if they, if they, if they separate the commissions out between horse racing and uh, they have different commissions for different sports. Like a, f a football game shouldn't have the same commission. Two sides in a football game shouldn't have the same commission rate as uh, uh, 30 teams to uh, 32 teams to win the Super Bowl. But um, eventually that'll have to change. One thing is when you start playing in the exchanges, you know, you are going against the smartest players in the world. It's the most efficient market by far. And um, uh, it's, it's not a panacea for a lot of people. People have ended up on the exchanges mostly because they've been kicked out of all the books. So you're so, saying that the exchanges are too efficient, so there's not as many inefficiencies for them to exploit. No, there's not. So because basically what drove people to the exchanges were they were kicked out of the books you know, for, for winning, right? Or, uh, so they end up in the exchanges with all the other pools of sharp guys that were kicked out. And uh, the universe of smart bettors on the exchange is, is much better. For, for years, I had the same pattern where I would uh, always win from the bookmakers and lose the exchange, which was the way life was good. Um, it was drawn up that way, you know, because of arbitrages. And You're talking about when you were a professional better. Well, just since I've retired, you know. Is that what you do for a living now? No, well, he's retired. I do as a hobby. <laughs> but in other words, for years, I, would, I was collecting the money uh, from the bookmakers and owing the exchange. And that's the way, you know, life really should work. Um, but now when there's no place to bet with bookmakers, you're just battling the exchanges and the inefficiencies are a lot smaller. And they're usually in things with, like most things in life, the lower the limit, the, the higher the inefficiencies. So that brings on a whole different issue of how professional gamblers can scale bets. I know we're changing topics right now. Um, no, but that's a great like that's a great line to call out. The lower limits, the greater the inefficiencies. Yeah, I love that. Well, Rufus knows that very well. Uh -huh. I, I think, but like just For to sure. call that out specifically is is pretty cool. So sorry, I I'd love to go back into this idea of like you and your own, you know, like market making and how you do it. 
Okay. Well, from an odds making standpoint, yeah. Well, wow, when I when I started, we we didn't have computers. We had calculators and uh, colored uh, pens and pencils. And um, I remember the first computer I got was uh, a Radio Shack TRS eighty. They called it a Trash eighty. Yeah, I remember those. You remember those? I had yeah. Those, yeah, of yeah. And but basically, I thought it might be a Vic twenty, but it's TRS eighty. Uh, so. uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, we used to call them trash 80s and Radio Shack's old men. The one thing they... Uh, you know, Radio Shack's not even a store anymore. No, I know that. I know. It's so sad. I miss it because they all they have stuff there they that I used to still hang like. out in Radio Shack sometimes <laughs> just because there was always cool random stuff in there. I could, always, I could always find stuff in Radio Shack. Anyway, what happened was that um, we originally got the computer and uh, the only thing we could use it for is storage of data, but that was huge um, because we could recall team's records and the results and log uh, point spreads and keep a history um, that everybody could share. And uh, then after a while, we were hooked up online. We started getting uh, weather reports, injury reports from AP, UPI. And uh, eventually, we got around, or we got somebody who could write a simple program to take the data out of the, um, out of the storage, sort it, and uh, help make the lines a little bit better. But I think what's happened now is... Um, Would they just like eyeball the data and make decisions? Or well, yeah, because at that time it was pretty subjective. Right. So but they at least had data to look at to be subjective. Yes. I'm sure there was a time like if you were making a second half market, you could literally just look and look at the distribution and be like, okay, what percentage of the games mm-hmm. you know, landed on zero here? We thought that was sort of easy because, especially like in the NFL, because there's only at one time when everybody made the extra point, there was only a function of so many scores it could be in the second half. And the lines at that time, there was always a regression to the mean at the opening line. Probably still, maybe not so much on college basketball, but certainly on on the NFL. Wait, what do you mean a regression to the mean to the opening line? Well, because the, the game seemed to come back. I mean, it's the nature of the way the game is played, not necessarily that the line is so good. But if people think the lines aren't any good, how come all the teasers win every week? But I think the thing to look at it was that the way the game is played, that you um, and you take this out of your data, once you are ahead by a certain amount of points, you know, the data doesn't count. I started with that with soccer when I decided I was going to do the same thing. I was going to look at possession only when the teams were playing at 11 men aside and scores were even. <laughs> what happened is, though, the, the n- nature of the game is the same way in soccer. A team is behind is always going to have better data and they're always going to come back into the game. They're just never going to come back into the game enough to, to win the game. Or that's the plan. Right. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, that, that's pretty easy to parse out. That's cool. So... But when you, you, you know, you can make a bad line, and it depends how – it used to be there was always opposition on lines. Like, suppose you made a football game, and it, it should have been six, and you made it three, and people would lay three, and other people would take back three and a half. People would lay three and take back three and a half, and it never got to what the right line was. So if there's a market out there for a perceived market or opposition to what might be a bad line – you don't get punished by it that much. You get punished by it more today because people are willing to run through numbers faster. Betters are. So do you, how would your life have changed if you were trying to be in, you were never an actual, you never ran a book itself, right? Well, with I, American not, not directly. Oh, well, no, but I was a street bookmaker uh, twice, once in Vancouver and once in Las Vegas, which is a kind way of saying an illegal bookmaker. Right. And it was on my own money and I moved my own odds. And then when I was the second largest shareholder in Leroy's, um, I didn't move the lines, but I had a lot to say about 
what strategy we were going to take. Interesting. So what, what would you do differently now, you think, than you do you did that? Uh, from a bookmaking standpoint, I think one of the problems that we had for a long time in the 70s, 80s, and the 90s was that the, the limits weren't scaled properly. You can't, you can't be taking $10,000 on an NFL game and 3000 on an NBA side. That's a three-to-one ratio. The ratio should have been higher. Some of the ratios we had, like if we're taking a dime on a college football total and 3000 on a college football game, that was an insane ratio to take. It should have been much higher on the side. You have to take a look at the public because Just because it's just easier to exploit on the total? Well, yeah, market. because you have to look at the a more efficient market. You have to look at the, the public participation and what you're putting the odds on. And then you have to uh, make some type of guess or you don't have to guess anymore about how far you actually, your lines are from the result, right? And um, it's, it's to this now the best thing the books have done is to more or less take a really huge bet on the NFL sides. And, and that's what I always thought. You figure out how much you want on an NFL side and you work your way down and probably at the bottom of the limit would be college basketball totals. But you should have your limit scale that way. That way you can manage professional betters and not let them manage you. So what, what is sort of the ratio of volume on sides versus totals, let's say, in the NFL? I mean, because you're saying that yeah, this I, ratio should be really high. I would assume that, you know, the sides market is much more efficient because it's just getting more action, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't know. Well, <clears throat> a lot of time you drive the business, so you never know. I mean, your limits and the way you move the numbers, you end up driving the business. So you actually have it making an imprint on a business without actually knowing what's going on. So that's a good point. If you, yeah, you can never know because of the limits. It's right. functional limits. Yeah. But one thing you can dive into pretty good is the parlays. And there's a lot, you know, when books started finally doing computerized parlay analysis, they realized, hey, we can take anything. It's just how much time do we want a guy to stand at the counter and spit out a 14-team parlay across eight um, sports, and he's got all these sheets in front of him. So when the kiosks first came in, Vixler and I tried to get these kiosks in for years, and the gaming control board kept turning us down because they didn't know if the person would be 21 years old or whatever. It's very old technology that William Hill is using now. We developed it in the 90s. They're still using the same technology, but a guy can stand up there at the kiosk and bet those $5 um, 14-team parlays across eight sports, and the takeout on them is running around 15 to 20%. I, I hate those kiosks, by the way. It takes forever to click through to get your bet in. Oh, and they're, it's they're the brutal. Only, it's the only yeah. way I'm allowed to bet at William Hill now. Oh, well, I go to check prices sometimes that use the kiosk, right? Because, oh, yeah. You know, but, uh, We'd always do that to see if props are up. You know, that was the secret. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Check the kiosks. Yeah. But now we all have those kiosks in. in our hands. It's yeah, true. It's true. It's so true. It's the yeah. difference. But, back, you know, back in the day, you actually had to hustle a lot more. Mm-hmm. You, do you miss those days, Rufus? Kind of. I mean, I think that there was much more of a return to hustling. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it oh, no n- now, I mean, it, the market's much more efficient because everybody can just look at, you know, look at the odds in their hand. And they're, what well, I said earlier, they're willing to take a lower limit. So if you can get two dimes on the app, but if they went down the counter and they asked Chris Andrews, something like that, you'd probably give them five. But so when, so for less money, the market's getting more efficient. And uh, that's, that's the way the whole business is being driven. You, you can take smaller limits and, and get to a more efficient market. So can I ask how you and Chris Andrews originally met? I, I've read, I've been reading Chris Andrews' awesome um, new book. Terrific, yeah. Uh, and I love the stories, but how did you all get connected to begin with? I was on a, uh, in Reno on a, like a busman's holiday during baseball season. 
was still playing through Las Vegas, you know, on the phones in the morning. And I was up there, and he had some baseball over and unders that weren't very good. And um, <clears throat> so you were a professional gambler at, this at that time, yeah. yeah. And they just when I say they weren't good, is because they they didn't they'd have an eight and then they move it eight and a half, or they'd have eight and they move it to seven and a half, and things like that. I mean, you could bet both ways. You go under seven and a half over seven. I mean, it just wasn't that good. I I didn't want to. I've never tried to. Uh, I've always had a good rapport with people I bet with over the counter, and I I'd bet them and double pop them, I'd tell them where my, my thinking was or something. But there used to be more of a gentleman's game. Uh, it used to be, if you thought, if you heard that Jabbar wasn't gonna play and you bet the bookmaker one time and you tell him. That, that way you guys had a, you always had a rapport. Anyway, Chris and I started talking. And then um, when I went back to Las Vegas, he asked me if I wanted to help him out with the line. I'm, well, back then Las Vegas and Reno were two totally different markers. Well, yeah, so I mean, you didn't have the yeah. internet, so You're right. no, you totally would have to like markers. relay via wire, right? What the yeah. what the odds yeah. are? We had a runner up there, but uh, the limits were only nickels, so it, it wasn't like you know we we needed to pay a guy and give him commission to go in and get bets that it wasn't worth it. And so, and all bets were written like handwritten, all handwritten, handwritten, and, and yeah. the boards were all not electronic. No, no, yeah. the board. So we're all uh, chalk handwritten, board. yeah, chalk and and uh, it's amazing, yeah. Uh, they still were at Leroy's when I was starting. Is that I still right? Remember that? Yeah. Okay. What, I was what, amazed. Leroy's down on uh, downtown. Tropicana, I'm thinking. Of. Oh, at the Trop. Yeah, yeah. The, the Trop place. Yeah, they still had. The, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yes. And all the handwriting is so neat. Yeah. So can we go back even yeah. a step further? And like, how did you even start becoming a professional sports better? Like, how did mm. that? Or how did you start becoming a street bookie? I think that that's kind of what led to being a professional sports better, I would guess. Yes. Um, Why well, I, I, in the late sixties, I was coming to Reno. I was living in Vancouver, BC. And I'd been going to the racetrack up there and I'd going to Reno and betting sports. And when I first came to Las Vegas in 1972, I fell in with some guys that booked um, bets from out of state, which is illegal, but you know, we, we've, always could get a better price so we could our the action. We had to make sure we we're getting paid though. That brings up another subject. Credit I risk. Yeah, I think people care too much about getting paid now, but I'll, I'll explain that later. And that led me to going up to Vancouver and I was booking Friday afternoons the NFL. I was only in the office for three hours out of a, um, a mining stock broker. So anybody's in that business is a gambler, right. mining stock. I was a trader. I traded oh, okay. options on equities in okay. Chicago. Okay. Well, the Vancouver penny mining stocks are infamous for, right. you know, uh, going up 400% after lunch. Make your market on this, make your market on that. <laughs> right. What's make more volatile? On, make your market on what time I'm coming in tomorrow. What's more <laughs> volatile, cryptocurrency or Canadian mining stocks? Oh, the mining stocks back in, in my day that you go out to lunch and uh, thought you made a score and you came back, they, they just gone to zero there was, there, there was, uh, the trading was uh, suspended I'd say mining stocks because it's yeah. penny stocks so yeah. So the volatility yeah. yeah the volatility is outrageous but anyway I started booking out of this office in football I had these ready-made clients and they've had all the favors and I just pushed the favors up a half a point or a point and then I laid what I didn't want off in Las Vegas and how'd you decide what to lay off um, basically I would try to bring myself in line where you know, I, I wasn't out two or three units on any one particular. So it's just day. more money management, or money management, management yeah. than actually like taking a p position based on like yeah. some fundamentals or something. 
rarely have I had an opinion in my life. Uh, even when I was a sports better, I had people doing data or I had people that I worked with opinions. And I've always thought like, to be a successful sports better, you need collaboration. You need one person who's a better, that's an art in itself. And you need one person who's a handicapper or more people. You know, you can start with two and then maybe you end up four handicappers and four betters. But one of the arts is trying to see how much money you can get, get down when nobody wants to put you on. And that's why you have to think out of the box to, um, to scale up your wagering. Because a lot of people think that just because they're smart enough to be the bookmaker, they're entitled to make a living. And that's not true. I mean, as you can tell, I mean, bookmakers aren't in business to help professional gamblers make a living. I know. You know, honestly, that's what I, I didn't know this when I moved out to Vegas. I thought that I had come up with a good a winning baseball model and, and that I was somehow entitled to now make money off of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I learned pretty quickly. That's not the case. No, but that doesn't mean you can't think out of the box to scale up how you can wager, whether it's overseas or tagging on to people to get large limits or even opening your own bookmaking operation. Um, there are, or betting a worldwide, like Billy Walter to worldwide betting syndicate where he starts pushing the numbers every direction. So he doesn't even need to have a side. He just, he ends up with the best at the top of the number and the best at the bottom of the number. Um, or, uh, is that how Billy Walters made most of his money? No, he made most of his money by having to have a better opinion. Really? But over time it, it became a betting business, not a handicapping business. Cause it didn't even matter cause he just was able to control so much. He could manipulate the line. Yeah. I remember everybody said, oh, yeah, we have access to Billy's plays, and I sure. think half of them were getting the true plays and half were getting the phony plays, right. and they didn't know. And the books were moving the lines based on somebody told them it was Walters or, or guys were tagging on and making bets, and some of them were and some of them weren't. The bottom line was he's, the reason he's a legend is at the end, he, he didn't even have to have an opinion. He could just release games and win off them. Um, because the line would move so much anyways, and then he right. could just bet the other side yeah. and be done with it. Yeah. So, and you could always get more coming back the other way because they always thought they were, you know, they, so they presumably as long as he wasn't really betting something that had a tremendous amount of value, he's always going to so much value on the backside that it's yeah. good. Huh. So it, it got to be just a market game. As, as you were said, you were a trader. You know, it got to be about, about the market, not so much about whether he'd be right or wrong. Um, so Jelko uh, uh, in Australia, who's uh, the reported and probably is the world's largest battery, just most of stuff in horses. So eventually every bookmaker threw him out and then he exchanged, you start getting more efficient because the other um, world-class betters are in the exchange battling you. So he just opened up his own um, exchange and then he opened up his own, um, he's got a paramutual system in England that's rival, rivaling the main paramutual system and he plans to bring it to the U.S. It's got some interesting things on it. It means you can cash out any bet at any time. Paramutual system for sports For horses. For horses. For horses. Yeah. Okay. And so he's competing uh, with the paramutual system that's already in place. And there's some unique things that are going on in the world. One of them is you can cash out every bet at any time. You can cash out bets that are, if you bet a soccer game, you can cash it out at any time during the game. You bet a horse race, you bet a pick six, you can cash it out after two, you can cash it out after one. And you said this is happening in Australia? Or? It's happening in England now. Well. In a lot of Europe. And it's, I mean, it's happening in New Jersey too now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, DraftKings, FanDuel, I'm not sure actually FanDuel does, but I mean, they have the, the cash out option. Right. And, and I, you know, I was doing this, so yeah, I did the sports betting national championship like thing, you know, and sorry. On the live odds. On the live odds. But apparently they actually take a fee afterwards. People think that, um, someone was telling me this, um, 
actually Alex from Sport Trade because he was um, he's trying to start an exchange. Um, you know the guy, Jeff, obviously. Are you trying to do a commercial for the <laughs> company that you're an advisor for? Well, I mean, I personally... They're not paying us for this sponsorship. No, they're not. So F them, so move on. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but he was saying that that you, it's not just betting the other side of the market. They're also taking a commission to basically find out exactly what that um, mm-hmm. what it is. And so... Well, the exchange, when the Betfair puts up a cash out, what they're doing is they're not taking a commission other than the fact that there's a commission on your bet and they're matching it at an offer that's already existing and getting a commission out that. Right. That's what it should be. But right. apparently that's not what it is in some of these books. Oh, okay. Like they're actually yeah. ta- like they're tacking on a percentage mm. on top. Just, yeah. Almost like if you parlay two minus one ten teams and the place only plays plus two sixty mm-hmm. when it should be plus two sixty four mm-hmm. point so, four. So for you, like what is the like, what's the passion for you out of this? Because it doesn't sound like it was the handicapping piece of it, right? So money. It was just the, <laughs> so w- w- like, where did you find your love for this? Oh, I like baseball and I like numbers. And that's probably what got me but started. wouldn't the handicapping piece be a big piece of that? Just being able well, to Well, it like, was. That's how I, you know, I mean, I could, could I have a, get a new car every three years and have a nice place to stay? But was I going to be traveling around the world and have a, a limo driver and this or that? You know, I, could, I couldn't figure out how to scale it up. And then the odds making, bits, I was going to do the odds making for a year or two and see if it worked out. It turned out that it was, I was riding the crest of a monster wave where everybody in Las Vegas decided to have a sports book, right? So that got to be a big business. Um, but... Um, you know, when you, there's a way, three ways to look at it. When you're a player, you can take off when you want to take off, right? You take a, you go bad, you take a vacation. You don't like football, you take a vacation. When you're a bookmaker, you're working uh, every day of the year, but, um, you know, in the long run, um, the only, the, the issue is not winning, it's collecting. And then if you're an odds maker, um, people say you don't have, much at risk, but in a sense you do, which, you know, your competition and, uh, um, but you're not getting any days off in that business either. So you, I, you can pick, I've comfortably gone between every one of them. It's much easier to be a player right now when you know that if you, if you don't win, it doesn't change your life. It's when you're, when you're betting money you don't have, that's pressure. Like people ask you, what's the biggest bet you ever made? The biggest bet you ever made is you bet money and you lose, you can't pay it. It doesn't make any difference how, how big it is. Yeah. So, so when you were saying about the, you were saying something about you want to talk about collecting, how everyone cares oh. about collecting. Well, question is, when are you not going to get paid? Can you beat the guy out of a little every week? Or if you beat them all the first week, you're gone. Or the worst scenario, you could lose the first week and then make, get a score in the second week, catch and lose. We w- worked on a higher percentage. The math- mathematics brought into the game is if somebody thinks they can win one and a half or two percent on, on something, it's, 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 a, it's a good ROI. The assumption is you're always going to get paid. Um, Which is definitely not true, I know from experience as well. Well, see, so in other words, we used to have to work with a much higher ROI because we knew we were putting ourselves in places where we we could get paid. We also had third parties making outrageous bets for us too, and sometimes a third party didn't pay. Um, But that's, you have to budget that in a sense that your ROI has to be much, much higher than just figuring out you're going to grind out 2%. I thought you were going to say something different. So yeah, say, if you see this opportunity, you should be basically trying to make, you know, betting things that maybe you wouldn't have any business betting otherwise just for longevity. I mean, to disguise the fact that you're actually 
well, really going to beat them out of a lot. Well, like my partner used to say, we take the money today and we worry about the heat tomorrow. That's not dissimilar to the blackjack. blackjack. Yeah. People think like you shouldn't be making camouflage plays and all yeah. that kind of stuff, and it's not true. Like your edge is so small that if you give away edge on a bet, like I agree, and you're going to get kicked out someday. Or let's say this: say other people are. You're not the only people in the world that are smart, and we, I've, we've Wait, never well, been the smartest I, guys in a room. I thought with well, Jeff, is. you guys might be the smartest guys <laughs> in a room, but I've never been the smartest guys in a room. And there's always people that are figuring out everything all the time. So let's say you don't get the money and you try to camouflage your bets and then somebody else comes in and then they take it all. Yeah. Right. Hell. I mean, every year for Super Bowl props, that's part of it. It's like, you know, you know how the Westgate opens mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. on Thursday and it's like, well, do we hit some of these numbers that are clearly off mm -hmm. or, you know, do we wait and have all these other books copy? But mm -hmm. the worst thing is when you sort of wait on one and you're like, well, maybe this, you know, We'll let this let we'll let everybody copy this one, and then somebody else comes in and pounces on it. Sure, when you Which, see and, and people in line, you know a lot of those guys know what they're doing, right? Well, and a lot of them are just arbing from other places too. Yes, that, that's that is the thing that I don't know is the biggest annoyance to me because it you know I'm, I'm like I'm only going to take I'm not going to take both sides of um, you know even if there is an arb mm -hmm. if one of them is negative EV. Yeah. Well, I've always thought arbitrageurs suck an incredibly amount of money out of the game, but if you do have an opinion, they'll actually add liquidity. So let's say you really have a strong opinion, but there's other people on the other side. Every time, that's where you, you always get your largest bets with your least edge because you get, yep. a, you get a lot of opposition and you have to respect when you're getting opposition. So you might be able to, at 2,000 a copy, you might be able to get down for 20 or 30,000 on a profit. People are on the other side they keep wanting to bring it back into line, right? And uh, that's a bit of a worry. It's a huge worry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I find, find that all the time. We, you know, this year on the Texas over and under in the baseball, we're, we're going to lose it. We could basically bet it all we wanted to because every time we went up um, under 71, um, the next day it was 71 again. And then there'd be 71 and a half. I mean, we could, keep, we could just keep betting, could have bet, could have probably got $50,000 at 2000 a pop on it. But it was, you know, we're going to lose it, obviously. But I mean, it's worrisome when there's other people that are opposing you because that's an esoteric bet, just like Super Bowl props that you are. It's not like people come out of the woodwork and are opposing you. It's, yeah. So when, right, you, when so something this like that happens, do you, like, you know that there's someone and you respect that person on the other side? Well, I can use, sometimes I can ask who it is. <laughs> really? so, yeah, well, because... Because I, I know the people who work here, I can ask who it is. And then sometimes that that worry, that really worries me. Well, I mean, sometimes you can also just then go directly to that person and say, Cut screw, screw laying minus 110. Yeah. Let's just do you do, go you heads up. This where you found someone on the other side and then just try to cut someone out? No, I haven't done that. Yeah. I mean, I would love to, to do that. But I mean, it honestly, that's why I like exchanges. That's why like we never. But the thing is, like, if it's someone that you know and respect, you're not going to do that. Like, yeah. I, well, exactly. no, you still have. I mean, but if you're betting, you can know and respect them. Um, and but if you respect your own model too, you might say, okay, well, maybe I probably have a much smaller edge than I think. But but if I'm if I'm getting no vig, and I think you know maybe maybe I think it's only half a percent edge now based off of this. If I'm getting no vig, um, I'm going to be much more likely to do that. So sometimes you're actually better to lay the 11 and 10 on a prop when there's opposition on it because it's not being moved properly by the books. They're moving it back and forth at a, at a number that makes both of you. Plus EV. Yeah, plus EV. Yeah. Um, so that has to be considered too. 
I've done it before in horse racing props. We used to uh, um, run into guys that there weren't too many people in the town to be betting them. Sometimes we'd split out some matchups. And generally, sometimes we'd show up, to be the first in line. We'd both, like, who gets to go first? We'd flip a coin and we'd go, he bets one, I bet one, he bets one, I bet one. So go down the line like that, Kentucky Derby props. But that stuff doesn't exist anymore because basically everybody's got a phone app now and it's the first guy who gets in, gets in, right? Uh, so, I, I, you know, it's, it, the market's totally different now. So what do you think, if you were coming up right now, like you were graduating from college right now, what, mm -hmm. like, what do you think you would do? Would you have gone into this business or do you think you would have found, let's say you were going right now knowing what you know, i.e. Mm -hmm. that it doesn't scale particularly well, mm -hmm. knowing what the industry's like, would you have just gone into something totally different? Yes. First of all, if I well, what would have been? Economics, finance. If I had, uh, that was probably going to be my this is what, I'm trying to get Rufus to go into like a real straight job. I want him to oh, yeah? have a straight job. Yeah. Because he can make a lot of money in a straight job, but he thinks his only skill in life is sports. Betting. I'm being stared at by, well, by two people right now. <laughs> well, my father was a Harvard MBA. He was a little disappointed when I uh, didn't want to go down that uh, route. Does he have a Wikipedia page? Uh, no. See? <laughs> but I would say that... Wait, am I the only one in here without a Wikipedia page? Probably, yeah. I pay, think, some, yeah. pay somebody. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't have to pay someone. You can just put it up yourself. Oh, okay. like, it's just like I'm probably also the only one. It's user-generated content. Your user. Is that what you it. did, Jeff? No, I didn't do that. No. I, I he, but he, he needs no introduction. Though. No. But I would say that if I was, I would study uh, economics. I'd be an economics major. I was an economics major, yeah. but I still was a sport, but then I right. went into sports betting. I think that's, find, I think that's you, the way to go because you need the thought process. Because basically the story we I agree with, with this. Right? I tell you I this agree all with that. the time. I agree. I the agree economic with thought process. Economics is like, it's so fundamentally sound for understanding all of this stuff, especially the way that economics is taught now mm -hmm. with like behavioral yeah, economics right. and mm -hmm. like all the stuff that like, you think about all that and you're like, wow. Like I've been, you probably been applying that your whole life, and now it's actually. Well, I didn't know why. Study. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm not as smart as, as, as the, the Nobel guys, of course. But I, we, we a lot, we stumble into a lot of things by trial and error. There's, they always say there's two ways to be a good poker player. One was just to play long enough, and you get beaten on the head by the same hand. You, you don't play anymore. Or the other one is to get a computer program and find out, you know, which hands are actually better. You'll get to the same result eventually. It's just one takes you a long, long way. And at one time, nobody had access to uh, the math involved. I, I think the math is you can always hire guys to do the math, but it, it's hard to get the right questions that is that is so true and that's mm -hmm. that's the big thing obstacle i've run into in general trying to sort of bring more people aboard um my team and it, it you know lots of people have the math skills but not everybody knows how to think about things right in the right way and, and what questions ask and that's why you end up with this preposterous data mining and um oh my god yeah and um arbitrary endpoints blah blah yeah, blah. yeah. yeah. So. favorites of eight to 13 coming off of a road lost by double digits that's been going on even when in days of uh, loose leaf notebooks people people would just write people would keep their own date on this right. and they would just sort of mine through I Man, it must have been much more time I, like bought the gold sheet back in like the mid 90s yeah, and i was like oh my sheet. god this is amazing this and trend does so all well. these numbers yeah. There's still people there. There's still people out there like being like, oh, you know, the, this trend is 12 and two and this other trend positive four, it's 15 and three. So this is a great bet. And then still losing like 18 out of 19 bets. There were some high correlation bets when the Monday night football started. Um, 
underdogs are winning at an incredible rate. And there's always a narrative why they're doing it. And then home underdogs were winning at a fantastic rate. So for two or three years, any data mining you did that re relied on a Monday night dog in some fashion, uh, reg you know, regardless of the spread or the over and under, it came out, you know, 60%. They all came out 60 to 70%. But um, it was just an amazing run. Strangely enough, that's not the way people were betting. I mean, in the 1980s, I think if you'd bet every home underdog in the NFL the entire decade, you would have made a nice profit. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. do you think, but Monday Night Football was especially extreme, well, but isn't yeah, that because you had a lot, like a lot of square betters, I mean, at least partly hammering those some of road was, favorites? I think some of it was random and it was driven, and some of it's always going to be driven by, by a number. It's easy now to go back and see what a more efficient line would have been made. There's still things that are really hard to project. So let's say Ohio State is a seven-point favorite against Michigan, and uh, the line goes to nine, and then uh, Michigan wins the game by 14 points. So let's say they're going to play the next week, no injuries. What's the line? That's still, uh, there's still a little subjectiveness for me in that. You have to weigh the amount of money that was on Ohio State versus the result. Now, as you well, as you do as well as anybody, as you, no, that's adjust, not true. As, as, no, you go in and dig out stats for the game, the meaningful stats in the game, and take a look at it. So you have to weigh the stats in the game that dictated the result, and then also the fact that people bet a lot of money on Ohio State. So the next week, what do you open it up? That's, that's still a dilemma today for bookmakers. Well, this would be like, this is the classic from this we NCAA. Talked, yeah, yeah, we talked about we this. We talked about this when mm -hmm. you had Alabama and Clemson and like the line moved and if they had played again the next week, what would the line or what should the line have been? Mm -hmm. He and I argued about this where we didn't have an answer. Mm -hmm. So who's, tell me in all your experience, who's the best sports better you've ever met? Well, except for the present company. Yeah, well, Roof is one of the smarter uh, guys that I've ever met. Um, you don't know very many smart guys, I guess. No, but, but you, and you're also cocky. So that's a good, <laughs> now hold up. That's a good combination. Actually. He's uh, not cocky. I would call him, a, he has like a, doesn't suffer. From he's like flattery. mild, he has mild <laughs> Asperger's or he doesn't quite really understand like what he should be fearful of. Yeah. You know, like, Wait, what like, do you, you mean by that? You can't hurt me because I'm dead already. It's fine. So. Well, the sports betting, the reason they never had, can have a sports betting hall of fame is because nobody, the best sports bettors, nobody knows who they are. And there's no reason to have, get publicity if you're a sports better. The only reason to get publicity is when you find out you can't make a living betting sports or it's getting too hard. So we don't know. I mean, obviously, Walters would be like, you know, at the absolute top. But that was his ability to take other people's uh, numbers that he paid for and uh, make. So we're talking, you're markets. like talking about originators, people that right. actually like. Actually, people were flat out handicappers and 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 bet and won. I mean, the books know who their accounts are, but you never know if they're arbitraging or if they're really who they're playing. And they don't want to be public figures. I don't know if it's for tax reasons, for various reasons. So it's very difficult. You can make a bookmakers hall of fame. You can make an odds makers hall of fame, but it's pretty hard to make a a players a betters hall of fame because a lot of people have gone through life more or less unidentified. So who's the who's in the bookmaker hall of fame and the odds maker hall? Of fame? Ooh, or the Mount Rushmore. The Mount Rushmore. So you you're well, you're definitely I, on this, top of the odds maker Mount Rushmore. Oh, uh, I don't know about that. Oh, for I, sure. I, um, 
You're the George Washington of odds makers. Real good, uh, Bob Martin. For so for players, I'd have Walters up, and I'd have uh, Chuck Sharp up for sure. And then I have to think about the other ones. For for bookmakers, Vic Salerno actually is in the Hall of Fame, and that's mostly for innovation. He really was the first guy to do so many different things: um, satellite books, computerized betting systems that actually worked, um, the kiosk system, even though it took a long time. So for innovation. The guy who's won the most money ever in the history of Nevada sports batting is Art Manteras. Really? Yeah. I didn't even get close. Wait, how? Every, every place he's a, worked, he's, he's, he's won a, an incredible amount of money. If I had to go around the world, if I was going to sail around the world for two years and I had to leave my, all my money, all of it, with one bookmaker, it would Art. So you, so you think Art Manteras is the best bookmaker out there in terms of being running a profitable book? In terms of running so a profitable what did he do book. Okay, he, so, so he's number one on the no, 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 but bookmaker no, 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 power ratings. But why? He, what he's been able to do is take really large bets from people that don't have any better opinion than, than the, than the uh, juice, the vid, right? And limit other people. And that's how he's made did it. He take, did he take bets from Sharps? Yes. He, 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 he runs stations. He's still there. What's up? He runs stations. He runs stations. Before, he still does. Before he ran the Hilton, before he, that he ran the Caesars. He's also he's progressed from Caesars, which only took care of high limit customers, to the Hilton, which became a little bit of both high limit customers, and because of their parking situation, parlay card business. Now he's in stations where he's got a network of seventeen books that has more probably the best market for locals for locals, and that's a high profit center. And he's maximized where he's been every place he's been. He hasn't changed his attitude. Um, I mean, he hasn't had one, he hasn't been a guy who's the basketball coach and can only coach one way. He's been a guy who's looked at where he was set, who the customers were and maximize the profits. That's a great so analogy. He's won at like, he's won at like middle Tennessee state at army Zaga at UNC and now for the Knicks. Right. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So what's, what's next for you? I don't know. I'm just trying to travel and, um, like explain to me time. like the day the day of Roxy Roxborough. What do you what do you do now? Like you're still you're still playing a little bit in games, right? What what it's a where do you see the edges right now in sports? Still in well, they're in futures. Just that you can't churn that much. But if the exchanges keep reposting futures all the time, and that's good. And the English books repost the futures after every week at the NFL and all the time in the uh, uh, soccer. But you can't. That's not. Uh, a livelihood. That's the way you, you can make money. So you could probably, you can make six figures, but I mean, um, it, it's a hobby. And I don't watch games anymore. I never like to watch games and I still read box scores. Even baseball, you don't like to watch. I, I watch some, but I'd rather soccer? read the box score from the bottom up. I, mean, I did all my soccer handicapping. From the bottom up, what does that mean? I started at the, at the pitching box and, and then try to recreate when the runs were scored and who scored them without looking at the batters. Uh, and I do so you look I at the inning by that. inning. No, I look at the I pitcher, the relief pitcher, right? And it goes up to the, you know, the starter. And I try to create like what innings all the runs were scored. Sometimes it's obvious how they were scored, walk home run. And then I just keep just going as a, game. as a game. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't win you any money. It's just a game. And uh, I do stuff like that. And I bird watch in Phuket. That's how, you know, you're getting old. Did you say bird watch? Yeah. Yeah. I live on a <laughs> golf course and I get, we get some fantastic tropical birds. And we have migratory birds. I sort of like that. When you get older, you get less social. So like birds, are, you become your friends. 
<laughs> it's not a bad thing. Rufus, do you have any more questions for Roxy? Yeah, plenty actually. Okay, so, I mean, I feel like, and Roxy, Roxy, um, we were you're messaging beforehand. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. You're, is it past your bedtime, Roxy? No. Okay. We're, we're going. We're going to have some drinks after this. Of we're course. Of course Roxy, are. what's your drink of choice? That's, I. You're, uh, when I'm uh, old fashioned, when I'm in Las oh, Vegas, let's get oh, some yeah. old fashioned. Yeah. That makes me so Martinis happy. Martinis in Italy, uh, Scotch in Thailand. You got to move to quick Scotch in Thailand. It's definitely so not bourbon in Thailand. I'll tell you that. No, but that's the biggest. That's the national drink. All the Asian countries love scotch. They do. And the higher end, if you give up somebody a high-end bottle of scotch, it's better than handing them money. A blowjob. Not really. That's debatable. <laughs> it's a tough one, though. Sorry. I have to think about that one. I have to think about that one. Speaking <laughs> of debates, um, you know. But you know, the, the value of something is the cost in the toil of acquiring it. And the, according to Adam Smith said anyway, and that last thing you mentioned is not that hard to acquire. You can actually, to drive to a liquor store and buy a good bottle of scotch, it required more effort. Yeah. Because <laughs> you'd have to drive somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, um, man, I feel like we should just end on that. But <laughs> You have another question. Ask him one well, more question. Then we well, I wanted some old fashions. I feel like Roxy had something he wanted to say, maybe related to the sort of ongoing um i guess i should call it my like crusade yeah of trying to sort of be a referee in the industry especially with regard to touts yeah and um and i guess relating to you know scalability right i mm -hmm. mean it's being a tout i guess is one solution to the scalability problem mm -hmm. although being a tout also doesn't really scale very well because then you have people that are, I mean, if you're very successful, you're mm -hmm. moving lines and like someone mm -hmm. like Dr. Bob, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Or right angle sports. Yes. But, um, how, how do you look at that? The way I look at it is you guys waste too much time on it. I mean, there's a lot of productive things that you could be talking about. So in the, my gambling career in the sixties, there were tops at the racetrack. They wanted to commission on giving you a horse, right? In the seventies, there were the newsletters, you know, the, Gold sheets, you paid, they give you analytics, right? And they give you selections. Mm -hmm. And then you can call them and get more. Then in the 80s, we had the 800 numbers and the 900 numbers. And then the end of the 90s, we had the internet tops. They've always gone on. The question is, how much of a disservice are they really providing? Whether they advertise poorly, that's true. But basically, if they give you the, the, uh, a real play on the prevalent market price at the time, they should be about 50-50. Or close to it. So what, what we need to say is, what are they doing the liquidity in this system? Are they adding more liquidity? Certainly they're adding more liquidity for sharper players. Are they, their fees so much that they're actually draining money out of the uh, liquidity in the system? I've never thought that was true um, because I think they make some people play uh, higher. They actually introduce people to playing. And um, on top of it, most of them bet their own games anyway, which is insane. So mm -hmm. the money goes back into the system, right? I mean, most tots aren't making a great living. No. And, and they're probably degenerates at the core. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And they're, this is the way to feed their degeneracy, right? And um, I shouldn't say it, but having said that, there's guys like the late Dave Malinsky was a good friend of mine. They would write a thousand words on a game. And if you wanted to pay for that, I thought it was fair value. 
if you really liked his insight or the way he thought about games. He's a little different. But that's a lot different than somebody just putting on five plays on the internet and charging you. But that's, a, that's a good point you make, though. I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, I'm not going to say his name just because I don't know if you want me to. But, but he basically said, you know, I think that he, he, he does write-ups for his plays. Mm-hmm. And he's, he said, you know, even – he's like, I would like to think that even if someone has a bad streak, mm-hmm. they will learn something from my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And that they're going to get smarter for it in that but, way But as this well. is where, where it all comes down, right? So Dave Malinsky, obviously, um, I had listened to him talk on some of the podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. He has mm-hmm. a lot of smart insights. But then he's on sort of pre-game. pre-game mm-hmm. And the way they end up having to market him mm-hmm. – for to make him make money or have them make money off of him, right? Is the perverse part, right? It's the I, part that like yep. you just go like that's not right. So it it comes down to like how you market yourself to some degree. I agree. And then what happens is you might have somebody like Dave, or you have a uh, Arnie Lang used to write for uh, Tony. He's a great writer, and he used to work for uh, Tony Salinas when he had a newsletter that came out, High Roller. Put an incredible amount of effort into uh, college football selections. Eventually, though, people aren't willing to pay for this content. So you have to, if you want to keep living that way, you just have to see who's willing to pay me and who's not. Um, You know, Dave ended up having a pretty good life um, hiking and traveling and doing things. But uh, I guess eventually he decided, look, I've got to monetize this somehow. You know, there's a lot of, nobody's really had a happy experience um, at pregame that I know of. But you have to go where the eyeballs are. If you're if you're an analyst, so like so why did why, why wouldn't Dave? Would, could Dave have just lived being a professional better? I think it's too hard. I think that he could make you. No, I I liked his analysis. I thought I knew more after reading Dave, Dave's story. But you can't make a living. I mean, hey, you can, huh? What are you talking about? In pro football, you don't get enough well, turn. You're right. Turn. There's not there's not a lot not not right. enough. Games, you have to start but... with a bankroll, but like a million, right? No, you don't think so. I don't think so. What would, what would you say in an NFL selection you would bet up is the percentage of your, of your football betting bankroll and on a game that came up very good for you? I mean, my football betting, I don't have a separate bankroll for football. I don't okay. know. Um, okay. but Rufus, Rufus has made it a lot. He's made a lot of money in other places. Like he's made money on, in the golf markets. Where right. But actually football, like I've made more, I don't know, well, lifetime betting second halves of football mm-hmm. has been pro- one of my biggest money makers for sure. That's and that's dried that up. Gone. That is dried up now. And mm-hmm. but going back to market resistance, you know, it, recently it's been the games that I'm getting down a lot on are the ones where there's market resistance. Or, and obviously those are going to be the ones that are weaker or mm-hmm. not profitable at all for me. Whereas the, you know, the ones I bet and suddenly, you know, it steams and, and I have a great bet, but I'm only able to get down like, a little bit on it. Sure. I actually see golf as one of the real future betting opportunities in the world, but it won't be the way you like it. There'll be a, there'll oh, be yeah, a hole by hole. They'll right. And there'll be, it'll be shot by shot and there will be, uh, it'll be algorithm driven and there'll be, um, internet, um, cams on every golfer and you can watch them all. And, and, the, and the betting will be shot by shot, but it'll all be small limits and all be driven by algos or exchanges. But so so what if I'm the algo? Term. Huh? Well, then I just have to become the algo. You do, well, you, you do because no, you're but, not going to be. Smart but the limits aren't going to are going to be really, really, really small. But I, I think golf is probably the the will expand more than any other sport. Um, just because it'll be like it's basically like just hoping that you're close to fifty fifty on everything and just mm-hmm. like churning your money and mm-hmm. having, taking a little bit out of it. Mm-hmm. Rufus, let's go get an old fashioned. Let's do it. I, that's good. Hey, yeah. great guys.
Thank you Thanks. so much. Thank you, Roxy. For this has been a real treat. Awesome.